I'm Jeffrey Rickman. This is Plain Spoken. I've been doing this channel for a bit, covering topics that I think are relevant for understanding the United Methodist Church and the Wesleyan movement broadly and the liberal conservative divide in America. Uh, it's been pretty broad. I've done a lot of interviews, and I would encourage you to check those out. I've been trying to understand what's going on in African Methodism and talking with a lot of different people there. Uh, I've also talked to a lot of American thought leaders, uh, including Odell Horn. I'm very proud of that conversation. Very interesting guy. Please check that stuff out and uh, promote, promote my stuff on social media as you're able. Share it with your friends. Um, this is part two of a, a, a... I tried to make it one part. Turned out being an hour. I'm trying to keep these things down to 30 minutes. It's talking about developments in the denomination that, that are indicative that the doors might be closing on those who want to disaffiliate. Last time I covered... Uh, what's happened in the Arkansas Annual Conference with Bishop Gary Mueller and his conference. Well, he's out now, but the conference disallowed three churches from disaffiliating. Um, and then this episode is going to be Bishop Sue Halpert Johnson and the follow-up Bishop Deese uh, pausing or uh, pretty much ending paragraph 2553 in North Georgia Annual Conference and why I have different language than them and, and how I see it. So um, anyway... Uh, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Let's get into it. We still need to talk about North Georgia, and uh, then I want to wrap it up with just kind of some brief thoughts about why all this matters. Now, the story with North Georgia begins before this. Uh, you'll see I, I have an, an article, Conference Sues for Control of Megachurch, and this is a picture, I guess, of Mount Bethel's sign. I don't remember if they were the largest church in that annual conference or second largest huge megachurch. Uh, the bishop uh, tried to remove their pastor without going through the consultation process, replacing him because the church was, well, who can say why? Because I don't know what was in the bishop's head. Anyway, she filed exigent circumstances when they refused to move Jody, the, the senior pastor, and uh, they went through a long process, which resulted in the church being free after they paid out the nose. Um, so this is the last chapter of her stint in North Georgia, she's been replaced with a new bishop, but before she left, she issued this statement on, uh, let's see, what date was that? That was on the 27th, two days after Christmas. Dear North Georgia United Methodists, as we approach the window set by the appointed cabinet to receive disaffiliation requests using the Book of Discipline, paragraph 2553, it has become clear that there is a need to pause in this process for our conference. And by pause, he, she means discontinue um, for all intents and purposes. I, I don't see the difference between those words. In fact, pause, pause assumes you're going to resume it. There is no clue in here that it'll be resumed. Spoiler alert. It is the responsibility of conference leaders to ensure that the disaffiliation process put into place by the conference board of trustees is carried out with integrity and grace. And I was... I'm not inclined to be argumentative, but I'm just, I, I don't think that that's stated anywhere in the Book of Discipline. So it seems strange to me that she's putting that onus upon it. Of course, that's ideal, but it, I'm not sure it's realistic. In its report to the North Georgia Annual Conference of the UMC in June 21, and again in June 2022, the Conference Board of Trustees affirmed its commitment to the concept of the gracious exit. In particular, the trustees affirmed a desire for disaffiliations to be handled in a fair, transparent, uniform, and good faith manner that affirms the one universal church in service to Christ and honors the mission and ministry of all Christians. So she's 
she's laying the case. We were going to comply. We had every in- intention of doing it, provided we could do it perfectly. <laughs> the board of trustees in consultation with the cabinet, the annual conference treasurer, the annual conference benefits officer, the director of connectional ministries, and the annual conference chancellor worked diligently to develop, update, implement a disaffiliation process that would fulfill the requirements of the Book of Discipline and the stated aspirations of the Conference Board of Trustees and the annual conference. We really worked hard on this for you folks. We were, we were going to do it. However, the cabinet has discovered and observed that many local churches have been misled about the disaffiliation process and have been presented with information about the process and the United Methodist Church and its leadership that is factually incorrect and defamatory. We have significant concerns about this misinformation. See that word, misinformation? And we are well aware that it has the potential to do irreparable harm. You know, the first rule of the general uh, general rules of the United Societies is do no harm. So we Methodists, we can't do this. It could cause harm. This information presented to members of the local church about disaffiliation has been outside the bounds of normal and acceptable civil discourse. Who sets those bounds, by the way? It's like free speech. Who gets to decide the bounds of of speech? Who gets to decide the bounds of acceptable civil discourse? I find this disturbing. It has not only been false and misleading, but has been antithetical to the concept of a gracious exit or a commitment to honoring the mission and ministry of all Christians. What 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 I see in this language of all Christians and the universal church up above, I think a lot of times the tension here is that liberals sense that conservatives don't think that they are real Christians. And so what they're making, they're saying, we control the gate, we control the door, we're not going to let you out unless you acknowledge on the way out that we are every bit as real Christians as you guys. So that makes things a bit complicated. I think that's what's behind this. But this is strong language, antithetical, outside the bounds of normal, acceptable discourse, defamatory, misinformation, irreparable harm. This is very... As a result of the misleading, defamatory, and false statements and materials shared with the local church members by certain organizations, not named, as well as clergy and lay members, also not named, of various churches and outside groups, we do not have confidence in the validity of upcoming church conference disaffiliation votes. After lengthy periods of discussion and consultation involving the cabinet, the board of trustees, and appropriate conference leadership, we have agreed that our annual conference cannot rely upon such votes for purposes of negotiating a gracious exit. You know, we could have done it, but we just can't trust that you've done it well. She doesn't say that in the document. That's my breakdown. The ultimate step in the disaffiliation process is the ratification of disaffiliation agreements by the annual conference. Same thing in all the annual conferences. However, because of the issues observed, the conference board of trustees is no longer confident it could recommend in good faith disaffiliation agreements to the annual conference at this time. So I found that strange that this is apparently the stance taken by the board of trustees, but the bishop is making it. It just seems like it'd be more appropriate for the the chair of the Council of Bishop or Council of Trustees, Board of Trustees, to make this statement. Um, I don't suspect that she is speaking falsely. I just, it seems like the bishop really taking the wheels here. Uh, the appointed cabinet, therefore, is amending its previous plea presented policy and will not accept disaffiliation requests at this time. Or will the conference Board of Trustees negotiate disaffiliation agreements? It's done. Dunzo. The appointed cabinet, Board of Trustees, and Bishop recognize the significance of this action. I think 
what is meant by that statement is we realize a lot of people are going to file suit. Bring it on. I don't know how else they could mean that. <laughs> we, are, we reaffirm our co- commitment to honor and uphold the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church. And then, of course, my note says, as we break it, paragraph 2553 does not provide the option for conferences to not implement it. It's a mandatory uh, thing. She's going to make the case later that people are taking advantage of it, but by a judicial council decision in response to a ruling she made, you can't scrutinize people's decisions for why they're implementing it. So it's just a strange thing that that she and they are saying, we, we're going to honor and uphold the Book of Discipline while they're not upholding its specific provisions. We commit to walking alongside the clergy and laity of North Georgia Conference as we together take this opportunity to reset our focus on the mission of the church, to commit to deepening our focus on discipleship and get to know our incoming Episcopal leaders. So that's right. Uh, Halpert Johnson is stepping out. Now there's going to be a Bishop Deese who's coming in. And let's pause and just get to know her is kind of what they're saying. So... Throughout this letter, she doesn't at all uh, address the fact that that within the Book of Discipline, paragraph 2553 uh, explicitly expires at the end of 2023. So she said, let's just pause until 2024 General Conference, but there is no provision in the Book of Discipline to exit that late. If you're waiting that late, then it's a very real possibility. I'm not going to say it's an inevitability. There's a very real possibility that there is no exit provision at that point. So you've paused them until the one provision expires. You've just discontinued it effectively. So the thing I appreciated about this document is that it has a Q&A at the bottom that actually addresses the misinformation accusation. Because so often there have been accusations made of misinformation that uh, are not substantiated. So for instance, I'm going to show you this article um, actually, I don't have it pulled up. I, I, uh, I meant to. There was an article done by UM News some time ago that, that talked about bishops leveling this accusation of misinformation, but then it's all broad. It's talking about how it's inappropriate to prognosticate or fear-mongering. Um, this, this actually talks about some specifics that I, I had some critiques to, and then um, I have an article pulled, pulled up in a minute that, that has some additional problems with it. Um, before... I go through this. I wanted. I, I was just thinking of this comic I saw on Facebook a while back that I I, I just couldn't help but think of this. And uh, I don't know what the setup to this is, but it starts with this guy. Of course, you're allowed to ask questions. Here is a list of approved questions. I'm applying this to the 2553 process. Of course, you're allowed to have these conversations as a congregation about whether or not you want to be affiliated with the United Methodist Church. Of course, we want transparent dialogue. We want, we're not afraid of the truth. And of course, I canceled that out. And then the next one is, you're absolutely free to study and investigate for yourself. Here's the approved list of, here's the list of approved sources. We're not trying to stifle thought. We want you to learn everything you can as you reach the approved conclusions. And of course, this mirrors uh, a reality that's outside of the United Methodist Church. These are not United Methodists that came up with this, but the notion is that people in authority are dictating what the valid sources of information are. They're saying on the outset what's true and what's false, and you cannot consider anything outside of this. Otherwise, we will call it disinformation, and you will be dismissed from this process that we were engaged in in good faith. So it's, 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 it's rigged from the start is, is uh, 
the allegation that I'm making. And the reason I make this is because a lot of these, these critiques that the bishop lifts up don't really hold water. So um, the first question was, why take this action now? In recent months, DS's holding informational meetings have encountered an, uh, an astounding proliferation of misinformation in local churches. This misinformation is being intentionally deployed, is present in every district, and has the potential to cause irreparable harm. There's that term again. As we approach the time to take the next step in the disaffiliation process, it is clear to the district superintendents, bishop, and the board of trustees that the process cannot go forward with integrity at this time. We are ethically obligated to pause this process. Now, the problem here is what I pointed out above. There are no names or dates or specifics attached to this at all. It's a broad allegation. Within the local church, a frustration all pastors deal with at one point or another is someone coming to them with a complaint, some people said. And I just had to learn within my first year or two of ministry to say, unless that some people has a name attached to it, I don't want to hear it because I, it's not valid information. I don't know why bishops think it's appropriate to level these allegations without specifics attached to them. If Bishop Halpert Johnson and other bishops want to make these allegations, I don't see why it's an unfair burden to be able to prove that these allegations are being made. Name the parties. Name the dates and locations. What is the misinformation? The misinformation has come in the form of printed materials, PowerPoint presentations, websites, videos, emails, and social media posts. Some of the most pervasive misinformation and examples of a breach of integrity include you know, with all those different things, those are in print. You should be able to supply those. There should be a website that they put these things together and say, look at this one, look at this one, look at this one. They don't have anything like that. First, first one, clergy suggesting that members of one church would be willing to join another church to help push them over the threshold to disaffiliate. So I, I call that membership maneuvering. You know, I honestly don't doubt that such conversations have taken place. I, I, I think that is the kind of structure the United Methodist Church has uh, facilitated for decades. Um, I, I, with such a litigious organization, of course, you're going to have people having such conversations. I think such maneuvering is uh, dishonest. I also think it's going to result in more misery. Uh, if you are if not representing the majority view of your church accurately, that's just signing you up for more headaches down the line. I don't think it's in the interest of, of, of clergy doing this. Um, and of course, it's only clergy who can decide who becomes a member of the church. So if there are conservative clergy wanting to do this, they're fools. It's just going to result in all kinds of, of nastiness. Next one is clergy making presentations to congregations that are not their own without the appointed pastor's permission, and in many cases without their knowledge, therefore undermining their ministry. Um, you know, it just seems weird. I don't no, none of my people are allowed to learn anything from any other United Methodist clergy other than me. That, I think that's the inference there. The only one who should be instructing any members of my church is me, and otherwise they're undermining my ministry. I'm not sure that's a realistic way to look at ministry. Like I, I fully understand that my people are getting influenced in their faith by lots of other pastors than me every week. I am not taking offense to them. I think that's really stretching um, the understanding of undermining a ministry. If the people want to know something, if they want information, if they want to talk to clergy who actually know what they're talking about, I don't see what's wrong with that. That just seems like you're making something evil that's really quite normal. 
church leaders communicating to members that the United Methodist Church's legal impasse is rooting, rooted in our differing beliefs regarding the authority of the Bible, the interpretation of the Bible, its impact on how we live out our faith, and the lordship of Jesus. This is untrue and is among the most widespread misinformation we've seen. I said legal. I meant theological. Thank you. So this is really, I think, at the crux of a lot of this. And uh, I just wrote why to the side. My understanding is that we've all known this, that liberals definitionally have a different relationship with the Christian canon than conservatives. Liberals, by definition, do not make things mandatory that conservatives do. Conservatives say, this is non-negotiable, it shouldn't change. Liberals say, why not? We can change parts of it. That's not to say that all liberals do not believe certain foundational things about the faith. It is to say that definitionally liberals do not believe those foundational things are requisite for salvation. Otherwise, they'd be conservatives. So if you say belief in the resurrection is absolutely essential for your salvation, if you don't believe it, you're going to hell, you are not a liberal, definitionally. But you can, as a liberal, say, I personally believe in the resurrection. I find it good. I personally believe in the Nicene Creed. I, I hold it. But I'm not going to condemn, I'm not going to say that God condemns anyone to hell for not believing it, in which case I just point you back to 1 Corinthians 6, which I read, which is, do you really have no discerning powers whatsoever? Do you not understand you're supposed to be judging people, much less angels in the world to come? You have just no framework for judgment? It's just, according to conservatives like me, a disingenuous way to present the faith. We've known for a long time that liberals and conservatives see the interpretation of the Bible and its impact on how we live out our faith and the lordship of Jesus very differently. To say it's, mis I mean, you can say it's misinformation, but it's not. The church leaders sharing the UMC no longer believe in the resurrection of Christ. This is untrue. Now, I, I can guarantee no conservatives are saying all liberals disbelieve in the resurrection. But I think we all know there are individual liberal clergy, including a bishop of the UMC, Bishop Sprague, who publicly have said that they do not confess the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. I shouldn't say, well, yeah, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not something that's shared among the clergy. We just, as an institution, have not been interested in heresy hunting. That's one of the things that happened around Bishop Sprague in 2004. They exist. I've heard bishops say, I'm not aware of them. Bishops aren't looking for them. And people are not going to come up to you, Bishop, and say, I don't believe in the resurrection. What are you going to do about it? That's just silly, you know, to imagine that there's a scenario where bishops would... Bishop, my understanding is bishops aren't even going to act against somebody unless a complaint is filed. And then when the complaint is filed, it's usually handled in a backroom way where the process and the outcome is not subject to the review of others. So that's why we are where we are. Um... All right, church leaders holding secret meetings on this matter to which not all members are invited or equally informed. Secret meetings, I, I don't know. I've just heard of United Methodist churches having all kinds of secret meetings or exclusive meetings. It stinks that people are not all of one mind, but sometimes you just want to have a conversation without people ruining it, you know? So I, I don't know how, how evil this is. Um, presentation saying that in the future, the UMC will force all churches to receive appointments of gay pastors, will force all clergy to officiate same-sex weddings, and that all churches must host same-sex weddings. This is untrue. Um, I don't see why. I, I, get, I think the problem is just that we're prognosticating what might happen. I don't see how 
a prognostication or an educated guess is misinformation or out of the bounds of, of reasonable discourse. In a denomination where we've already foisted, and I'm not saying it's bad, but we, where we took a certain stance on female clergy and then we mandated that all local churches have to be willing to receive a female clergy, why is it out of bounds for us to be entertaining a scenario where we change our stance on LGBTQ clergy and mandate their presence in pulpits that are not wanting to be open to them. I, I just don't see how, how they say that's inappropriate. Church leaders uh, presenting disaffiliation as an opportunity to own church property. This is not the purpose of paragraph 2553, and it is an inappropriate use of this process. That might be, but Judicial Council for, uh, Decision 1422 already said you cannot question the reasons of uh, conscience under which people withdraw. That, that, that pronouncement was made knowing that local churches would take advantage of it. So it's, it's so strange to me. I mean, it was, it was this bishop who got that, that I mean, she made that pronouncement. It was upheld by the Judicial Council. It's just strange. I, it's, it's, I, <laughs> I don't know how to validate that as I'm using my, I'm trying to steel man her argument, but it's so explicitly, you know, the 2019 General Conference so clearly decided the denomination for the conservative caucus, and yet liberals stayed anyway. They used the structures and power that they already had in place to do what they wanted. Conservatives in this case are taking the one out have, they have to get out, and they're being shamed for using the one out improperly. It does say for matters of conscience, for action or inaction taken. Now, it is stretching the truth, and I don't feel good about it, but I'm certainly not going to shame local congregations who have discerned we would not be happy in this body for doing what they can to get out. It's just strange. Church leaders communicating that North Georgia Conference leadership is not following the Book of Discipline. In fact, the North Georgia Annual Conference and its leaders have taken no actions in conflict with the Book of Discipline. So I wrote to the side, conservatives disagree. In the Tom Lambrecht article that I'm going to recommend after this, he actually specifies that North Georgia Annual Conference is putting people in clergy positions who by discipline are not fit for service. They are uh, disregarding the instructions of the Book of Discipline. I don't have that information, so I'm not going to make that allegation. Church leaders claiming that the Apostles' Creed has been changed. This is untrue. Now, first off, it is true, but it was changed a long time ago by John Wesley himself, who removed that phrase uh, that Jesus descended to hell or descended to the dead. That's that's not pertaining to this. But secondly, the Apostles' Creed is not even one of the official doctrinal statements of our denomination. That's kind of not here or there. But anyone really making this argument that that the official doctrine on paper is being changed just doesn't know what they're talking about. I haven't heard anyone say this, by the way other than liberals or institutionalists accusing conservatives of saying it. I just haven't heard a single conservative say this. Church leaders claiming that the UMC is no longer believing in the divinity of Christ. This is untrue. I just asked for names again, but also this deals with the same thing as saying we don't believe in the resurrection anymore. There are United Methodist clergy who don't believe that Christ was divine. I've met several who, <laughs> who outright own this. You know, uh, And if you're saying file charges against them, uh, no, <laughs> it's a hostile environment. Uh, church leaders claiming that the UMC seminaries are teaching a variety of unchristian material by non-Christian professors. This is untrue. No, it isn't. 
I went to Boston University School of Theology. I'm, I'm, I'm very aware from my own personal experience. I'm very well, well aware from uh, uh, factual write-ups by the IRD and juicy ecumenism, stuff going on at ILIF, stuff going on at uh, 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 Duke, uh, very disturbing stuff, and if they're able to get a hold of it, that means <laughs> there's a lot more of it going on, because this stuff is is not broadcast. Uh, what's been going on at the seminaries has been scandalous for decades. There's a lot more here, and I'm I'm out of time. I didn't mean to spend this much time on this. There are, uh, I'm just going to, I got the Judicial Council decision that I was going to show you. Um, you know, I wanted to show you, uh, there was a, a write-up done by Heather Hahn in the, the UM News that was really decent. Um, the Tom Lambrecht article, I'm just going to show you the, the opening to this. I thought this was a really decent article. I think everything Tom Lambrecht does is fair and in good taste. If you don't think so, I mean, he's he definitely does some of like this emotional, you see I, I, I underlined it. Uh, characterizing the, the bishop, he says she defiantly led the North General Conference to stop. This is a draconian action. It'll surely backfire, and it's uh, it's such a paternalistic way of doing things. Like, it's it's strong language, and it's a little emotional. I, I don't really like that. But then, I mean, it's very substantive, and he, he deals with things in a, a legalese way. Uh, he talks about some of the political theory behind it. He says, you know, there, there are two approaches for dealing with bad information, and that is the Western way, countering it with better information. And then the second way is the, the autocratic way, which is censorship. And so this is essentially censorship, what, he, what he's saying. So um, this is a good article. Um, the, the thing I'd like to close on is just uh, I, I want to be equipping my friends in ministry. So there are some good history bits to read about. One is this uh, article by Matthew Seichel, Methodist, Fundamentalist, and Modernist, A New Look at an Unfinished Controversy. And what he effectively argues is this stuff has been going on for a century, longer than a century. There's There's been, uh, man, look at that, <laughs> small writing of firebrand. Here that's a little bit easier. Um, but if you're interested, I, I think if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it first off. But it's just interesting. It's genuinely interesting. Um, the, the second piece, that was written up before North Georgia. This other one that I'm, I'm going to put on the screen, uh, <laughs> the title is a little bit more inflammatory, The North Georgia Throwdown, Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. So between the Lambrecht article and this article, it, he also goes through the accusations of, of misinformation and um, he substantiates some of the things that Lambrecht doesn't. So between those two articles, Lambrecht's and this liar, liar, pants on fire thing, I think it's uh, valid arguments are made against the accusation of misinformation. Now, I don't think anyone needs to make the case that there's been no misinformation, but I think the, the thing I would say is there have been a lot of valid concerns lifted that need to be addressed earnestly, humbly, uh, uh, transparently out in the open, so that people can make an educated decision. The accusation that Lambrecht makes in his article is that Bishop Halpert Johnson, or maybe the incoming bishop, Bishop Deese, looked at the disaffiliation numbers. According to Lambrecht, fully a third of local churches in that annual conference were wanting to disaffiliate. When you're looking at those sorts of numbers disaffiliating, you're looking at huge uh, damage being done 
not necessarily to the kingdom of God, because of course Methodists don't believe we're the only Christians, but huge damage done to an institution that has been built up over the course of centuries. And uh, the case that I would make is that there are large institutional forces at play that don't have much to do with Jesus. And the, the temptation of human beings is always to kind of uh, baptize or christen our worldly feelings and use uh, uh, holy language around it. But I still come back to the Scriptures when foundationally, explicitly in, in, in Scripture, we've been told not to file suit against one another and that it shames Christ and His church, then um, I, I just don't have anything good to, uh, to say about Christians who do so. Um, I'm not going to say that I'm pure and perfect in this or that there's never any provision. And I, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to have it all together, but I'm and I'm not going to use this emotional language of I'm deeply disturbed and I'm just so emotional, you know, I, I could do that. I was born in the United Methodist Church. My parents were United Methodist ministers. My grandfather was as well. Um, I could get emotional about this, but in the end of the day, uh, I'm not justified by my emotions and what feels right at the time. I'm only justified by the blood of Jesus and how he taught me to live, and that means not returning evil for evil. Uh, that means letting myself be wronged. You know, this is scriptural language. Um, the hard thing comes in whenever we have uh, local churches to defend. You know, Christ has put us in place to fight off the wolves, and we'd like to imagine the wolves never come from inside the church, but they do, and that's why we're given tools by Jesus himself to discern them by their fruits, right? So this gets complicated, and it's hard, but just because it's complicated and hard doesn't mean that we should just roll over. And that does seem to be the expectation of uh, institutionalists or liberals, that, that we would just realize we're the bad guys, that we're on the wrong side of history, and that we just roll over and give in and just and, and <laughs> go on with their, their, their brave march through history. And uh, when conscience dictates that we can't do that, then we can either get up and leave and just leave everything behind, and I think that's what they want sometimes, but that doesn't honor the history and heritage of those who built local churches. You know, in this particular church I'm sitting in right now, Nowata United Methodist, uh, one of the leaders here said, I knew all the old folks growing up. I, I know several generations back, the people who built this church would be appalled at the direction the denomination is going right now. Uh, and you can write him off. You can say, oh, he must be reading misinformation. He's fear-mongering. But as, as one who's been watching the splintering and decline of our denomination for some time, at least at this point, I'm very clear, a lot of this, most of this is real. And we need to uh, either honestly own up to it, or we can continue like gaslighting each other, I guess, but I would rather not. So anyway, there's a lot more could be said, um, and I think I'll leave it there. So anyway, if you have comments on all this. If you think I missed something important, go ahead and put it in the comments, and I may or may not read it and apologize to you. I'm not going to make any commitments. Um, I got a number of other things that I want to report on in the coming weeks, so if you like this, if you think I'm a, a person worth listening to, just go ahead and spread this around. Make sure your friends know about it. Um, I, I'd like to think if there's one part in particular you pass on, it's just the particular specifics of misinformation that Bishop Halpert Johnson I think I think it's just really good for us to think through the particulars here and be equipped to answer that whenever a bishop gets up and says, I just think it's wrong for people to accuse us of not believing in the resurrection. Well, okay, who's saying that? 
Are you saying that there are no liberal clergy who disbelieve in the resurrection? I mean, uh, it's better to have some responses in mind rather than go, oh, you know, I guess so. We shouldn't be saying that. I guess we're wrong, you know. All right, well, let's wrap it up. Uh, God bless you. I'll do another one of these next week, hopefully on Friday. Bye.